Turn with me if you don't already have it open to the passage we read there a moment ago, Acts chapter 4, beginning to to look at, at verse 32. Let us pray. Father God, as we read this passage in your word, we come across a sobering account of people who who trivialized you, who got it wrong in your presence. Lord, help us not to be among them, not to be like them. Help us instead to be people who come humbly and reverently into your presence and who now for these next moments listen as you speak your word to us. Come by your spirit and make yourself known to us, we pray. Amen. I can still remember a discussion we had in one of our pastoral classes in college. It was a a class where everyone was was training for some sort of full-time pastoral ministry, so we all had similar interests at heart. And the topic we were talking about on that occasion was how you, you measure a person's commitment to Jesus Christ. It was quite an interesting discussion. Uh, we were talking along the lines, for example, do we measure a person's commitment in their words? Does the person who speaks the most and the loudest about Jesus, is that person uh, the one who has the greatest commitment to Jesus Christ? Well, we dwelt on that for just a moment, and we realized that none of us were very comfortable with that we realized that some people might speak an awful lot and and very freely about Jesus, where others might be much quieter. And we weren't content to say that 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 vocal person had a greater commitment to Jesus than the the quieter person. So we kept talking along these lines for a while. And then the professor chipped in with with what seemed at the time like quite a provocative suggestion— he, he said, um, you can tell a lot about the commitment of a person to Jesus Christ by looking at two everyday documents. He said, if you've got to look at a person's diary and their bank account, their bank statement, you'd have a good idea of their commitment to Jesus Christ. I remember thinking at the time he was just trying to rattle our cage and, and wake us all up a wee bit. It, it sounded a wee bit too you know, too abrupt. He was working on the theory that the way in which we spend the things that are valuable to us tells us a lot about our commitments. How we spend our time and how we spend our money tell us a lot about what's important to us. What do you think? Do you think he was right? I thought just by way of an exercise, we'd all bring our diaries and our bank accounts next Sunday evening and would pass them up and down the pew and just, um, no, no, we won't do that. But it's an interesting idea, and it's something that, that, that I want you to dwell on with me for a moment here this evening. If the professor was right, if those things are a good test of of a person or a community's commitment to Jesus Christ, 
the early church would have passed with flying colors. We thought about this a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 2, and at that point we were focusing, I think, mostly on the diary. We were looking at how they spent their time. And if you remember, we read there in Acts chapter 2, in the verses in the early 40s, we read that they devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We learned that they met together in the temple, they met in each other's homes, they shared life together. So for these guys, the encounter that they have had with the Spirit of Jesus Christ changes profoundly how they spend their time. It's visible in their diary. Tonight, as we come to these final verses of chapter 4, the emphasis, I think, is less on the diary and more on the bank statement. We get to think a little bit about the believers and how they dealt with their property, their wealth, their money, if you like. And as we audit their bank statement, we're going to discover that the presence of the Holy Spirit has a huge impact on how they spend their money. Let's jump in there at chapter 4 and verse 32. In some ways, verses 32 to 35 of chapter 4 are very, very like the famous verses of Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Both of them are glowing descriptions of this new community of Jesus Christ. And although they both speak of the same realities, I think the balance of emphasis here in chapter 4 is on the the generosity of the Spirit-filled community. So that's going to give us a theme for our reflections here this evening. Let me give you an outline of the verses that we read this evening. I think the first chunk at the end of chapter 4 just gives us a report of the early church's generosity. The last couple of verses give us a specific example of the generosity of the early community. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, gives us a warning of the generosity gone wrong. So that's a wee outline of what we're going to be thinking about here this evening. So let's begin with the description of this generous community. Look at verse 32. Luke tells us that all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 2, so I only want to recap on this very, very briefly this evening. We asked the question, should every spirit-filled living church become a commune? a place where we all sell everything that we have, come and drop it on the platform here next Sunday evening. Is that what the Bible is teaching here? Is that the life that we're called to? Well, you'll probably be relieved to hear that we said a few weeks ago, we said no, and we say no again this evening. We realized when we looked more closely at the passage in Acts chapter 2, that not all members of the early church sold all of their property all of the time. Instead, we saw that there was a situation there where no one was ever in need. And that's exactly the point that's being made again here in chapter 4. Look at verse 34. Luke tells us that there were no needy persons among them. 
And that's a wonderful fulfillment, sorry, of, of an Old Testament law. You could turn away back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. Moses commands the people, the new community of Israel at that time, and he says, there should be no poor among you. He says, if you really want to say that you're the people of God, then you don't have poverty in your community. Because in the people of God, everyone is provided for. So it's a, it's a, a law that has been with God's people for centuries. But here we find that it's lived out in the early church. If there's a member of our community who's in, in need, then sacrificial giving ought to be like a heartbeat. It ought to come very naturally to us. There's something that struck me about, about this stuff, this, this line of teaching here in these early chapters of Acts. It's very, very down to earth. The early chapters of Acts are well known in the whole Bible as as being a biblical high point. You know, they're the sort of passages that people go to for a, for a bit of a spiritual high. You know, we read there about very dramatic signs of the Spirit coming, the tongues of fire at Pentecost, the bold gospel preaching, the dynamic prayer meetings. And now, almost without warning, Luke drops in this stuff about bank accounts. couldn't be more every day. It's about people selling stuff that they have so that other people who don't have can have. It's as down to earth as every day as life could possibly be. And for Luke, there doesn't seem to be a dichotomy here. He seems to be making the point that that spirit-filled praying communities are exactly the kind of communities that, that do practical things easily and well. Spirit-filled churches are overflowing with generosity. One commentator in the early church, he put it like this, this concern for the needy, this willingness to sacrifice one's own possessions did not arise from a merely human resolution to be less selfish and more ethical. It arose out of an encounter with the Spirit of God. Perhaps the reason that we are afraid to risk our property, to dig into our savings, to choose less lucrative careers, is that we're not really yielded to God. Perhaps we're not really living in the full, unhindered presence of the Holy Spirit. The love of God does not overflow in our hearts. We fear that God is unable to to take care of us. Look at the scale of the giving in the early church. You can't help but be impressed by it. This wasn't the loose change in their pockets. We're told of lands and houses that are sold on occasions. This is real sacrificial giving. Without mentioning any names, I want to recognize that 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 kind of giving goes on in our church. There are people in our church who give significant proportions of their income 
For some of them who've been blessed with good incomes, their, in, their, their giving goes into the thousands. If you were here at our AGM last Sunday morning, you'll have seen that in our annual accounts, we disclosed a, a one-off anonymous donation of £34,000. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that simply so that you don't consign the stuff that we're reading about here to ancient history. There's still room for and a need for the same significant sacrificial giving in a spirit-filled church of Jesus Christ today as there was in the times that we're reading of in Acts. My professor, I think, is right. The bank statement is still a good measure of our commitment to Jesus Christ. I've told you about wonderful givers in our congregation. Luke does exactly the same here in Acts. He draws attention. He's at liberty. I don't know how this worked, actually. I don't know how he, he was able to to mention uh, Barnabas by name. I guess Barnabas is giving, his, his giving was done in a very open way. And maybe from that point of view, it was okay to disclose him uh, to his community. But Luke draws our attention here to, to Barnabas in verses 36 to 37. He tells us, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it before the apostles' feet. I've already given away the identity of this Joseph from Cyprus. This is Barnabas. We're going to see as we read on in Acts that this, he's a very important character in the book of Acts. He's probably one of the lead characters of the supporting cast, if you like. He's not a Peter or a Paul, but among the others, he's a very significant figure. Let me, in a nutshell, tell you about Barnabas. This is the guy who took Saul of Tarsus, recently converted, and brought him into Christian fellowship. When everyone else was terrified, Barnabas said, come on, Saul, I'll I'll bring you into fellowship. He encouraged Paul to mix with other Christians, to exercise his teaching ministry, to get involved in mission. He played a, a huge role in the earliest days of the church. Now, I want you to think about that. Barnabas in the Bible is the archetypal encourager. And how are we introduced to him? As a giver. We're allowed to look at his bank statement and we see that it tells a story of wholesale generosity. Folks, I don't think there's anything coincidental about this. Barnabas, the son of encouragement who gains a reputation for inspiring and encouraging others is first of all a giver. Friends, never underestimate the encouragement you can give in the life of a church simply through your giving. In the converse, let me tell you that there's no less encouraging place to minister and to be part of ministry than a place where there is no generosity in the giving. Every initiative that we try is is almost impossible because there are no resources 
to allow it. There's no time for generous gestures into the community because there are no resources in the community. The the church is this depleted, um, cap-in-hand community that goes scrounging in the neighborhood, hoping that those who don't know Christ can can support the ministry of Christ's people. Friends, it's it's an awful, discouraging place to be, a community where God's people won't give. But let me tell you, it's quite the opposite whenever a community of God's people becomes a a giving community. We begin to to demonstrate spirit-inspired generosity. Suddenly, all the ministries are fully resourced. Suddenly, the church goes into the community no longer scrounging, but blessing and, and giving. The whole church becomes, I think, a demonstration of the gospel, where all things are a gift where grace abounds, when we, the people of God, can demonstrate the the giving qualities of our God. Friends, in the end, I think the desire to give financially speaks volumes in the life of any believer. That's why Luke tells us about Joseph, a Cypriot-born Levite, who sold a field and gave the proceeds. It's a demonstration of the Spirit's work in his life. We're going to spend the rest of our time this evening looking very quickly at another example of giving in the early church, but this is a disastrous one. Before we look at this incident with Ananias and Sapphira, I want to take a moment to put this incident into its larger context for you. There's an aspect of the the story of the early church we haven't dwelt on too much just yet. As soon as the Spirit came on the early church, Satan moved in opposition. And we're going to expect to see that more and more as we move on in Acts. There's a ferocious counterattack. Pentecost is followed immediately by persecution. John Stott identifies a carefully developed strategy of Satan's opposition. He attacks on three fronts. His first attack is the one that we looked at last week as Philip guided us through the early part of Acts chapter 4. It's physical persecution. The believers preach and the authorities bring persecution. So that's the first strand of Satan's attacks on the church. His second and his more cunning assault is the one we're going to look at for a moment in the the final parts of our our thoughts this evening. When Satan can't destroy the church from outside, he moves in. He comes now through Ananias and Sapphira and longs to bring bring evil right into the community. And we're going to see that this evening. And his third ploy, the one that we won't see just yet, is the ploy of distraction, where he tries to distract the apostles from their their key ministries of the prayer and preaching of the word. He preoccupies them with other things or tries to. Folks, the reason it's important to notice Satan's strategies in the early chapters of Acts is that Satan hasn't changed. Our God is a creative God who who does new things all the time, but, but Satan isn't quite as creative 
His, his patterns of behavior are still the same now as they were then. There's still persecution. There's still evil that comes into our community, and there's still distraction. So let's pay attention for these last minutes this evening to this, this particular attack of Satan and take the warning this evening. There's one last thing I want to say in general about this Ananias and Sapphira story before we, we come to look at it, and that is the stubborn honesty of the Bible. The Gospels are full of accounts of stuff that if you were trying to convince people of, of Jesus and of what a wonderful life it is to follow him, you'd airbrush them out. Because so many times the, the disciples look like you know, complete wasters, guys who get it wrong all the time. You'd leave it out if you were trying to convince people. Well, I think this is another example of this, but this time in the early church. If you wanted to make a case that the early church is a perfect community that never gets anything wrong, where everyone follows Jesus Christ and it's happy, happy, happy all the way, this story wouldn't be there. But thank God we serve a, a real God. We serve the true and the living God where honesty is always at the heart of his revelation. And so, look under the guidance of God's Spirit, gives us this incident. Let's look at it very quickly. It's a well-known story, and the facts are clearly presented, so I, I want to go straight to the nub of the matter. What's the problem here? What has Ananias and then later his wife Sapphira done wrong? It's not keeping back some of the money. Do you see that? Peter makes that clear in verse 4. He says, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Peter actually, he's confirming here what we said a moment ago about how the early church thought of property. Believers were under no pressure to sell their property. He says it belonged to you. And having sold it, they were still under no pressure to give all of it to the church. There was no expectation of that either. So what's the problem here then? The problem is that Ananias is lying. He's giving part of the proceeds of a field that he's sold, but he's pretending that he's giving it all. So to anyone who's looking on, Ananias coming into the church that next Sunday and giving the proceeds of the field was exactly the same as what Barnabas was doing. There was this expectation, the way the, way the community was, was receiving these events, that these were the whole proceeds of the field. Some commentators suggest that before the sale of the field, Ananias had somehow come into some sort of a contract with the church leadership that he was going to sell the field and bring the money. So as soon as he shows up with only part proceeds of the sale of the field, he's guilty of embezzlement and of lying to the community and to God. Even, even when that happens, Peter doesn't focus on the fact that he's brought less than the full amount of the money. It's not the money that worries Peter. It's the deceit that outrages him. Really at the heart of this, 
if you enter into it for a moment, what's going on? Ananias and Sapphira want credit that they're not entitled to. They want to be seen as as more sacrificial, more generous givers than they really are. They want that reputation without the inconvenience of actually giving all that they're claiming to give. They want their ego fattened without their bank account shrinking. For them, they see this this community that they're part of simply as an opportunity for self-promotion. Friends, the church is not and cannot ever be a platform for our self-promotion. We must never use the people of God as a place where we come to have our ego fed and nurtured. We mustn't do that in their giving, as Ananias and Sapphira did. We mustn't do that in our, in our leading or our preaching or our playing or our singing. That's the one thing that I stress more than anything else when I meet with the, the folks like David, the folks who lead our evening services for us. The one thing that I stress with them is don't let this become about you. Don't take for yourself glory that belongs only to God. As soon as we do that, as soon as there's even a hint of self-aggrandizement in our church community, God goes. God will not be the supporting actor while we promote ourselves in the community. As soon as we become more interested in our own glory, the glory of God departs. I wonder what was going through Ananias and Sapphira's mind. I I suspect that they simply thought that they were going into the church, that they were pulling the wool over the leader's eyes and the rest of the congregation. They simply thought, you know, we can steal a march here. We can present ourselves as better than we are. It's simply a, a small deception of pulling the wool. But Peter saw something much more sinister. He saw this as a satanic attack against the Spirit of God. And he makes that very clear when he confronts the lying couple. In verse 3, he says, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? In verse 9, he asks Sapphira, How could you agree to test the Spirit of God? Although they have been lied to, the sin here is not primarily against the apostles. The whole community has been made a mug of as they have come forward with their, their gift and have told their lie. But that's not the biggest sin either. The big sin here, as always, is against God. Folks, it takes a moment of God-given clarity. And I think it's finally a moment of great grace when we see that our sin is not against 
our, our wives or our husbands or our children or our friends or our neighbors or our church family, that our sins are against God. Do you remember David got that wonderful moment of grace when the prophet Nathan came and confronted him and he said, you are the man. Do you remember what David said in his, his prayer in Psalm 51? He saw that his sin was finally against God and he said, against you, you only have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. Folks, I think it's a measure of the impoverished nature of my heart that I'm still more worried about being caught on doing the wrong thing by other people than I'm worried of how my sin is before God. Against you and you only have I sinned. I think the death of Ananias and Sapphira in this Ananias and Sapphira in this story seemed very stark. I'm sure that was for the same for each one of us as we read this. It's hard to understand why this has to be the outcome. Calvin gives one explanation of the severity of the punishment that falls on these two. He says that it's in keeping with the very intense nature of the visible signs of God's Spirit in the early church. He puts it like this. He says, as God poured out His visible graces on His church in the beginning, so that we might know with assurance that He'll be present with us by His Spirit, so He has demonstrated by visible punishment of two persons, how horrible a judgment awaits all hypocrites, all who have held him and the church in derision. Folks, we live in a time and in a culture where people are easily flippant about holy things. If I could summarize this story for you, and let it lose none of its force, I'd offer you a very blunt conclusion. Don't mess with the living God and with the church of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's not do that. If this passage here this evening strikes fear into our hearts, that's no bad thing because it's exactly the response that we read of in the passage. Luke tells us in verse 5 that great fear seized all who heard about Ananias' death. He reinforces it in verse 11. He tells us that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God used these events to win reverence in the hearts of his people. Friends, if there's a warning here for me and for you, let's not miss it. Let's not be flippant and dabble with the living God. Let me close for this evening. Everything that we've been thinking about Ananias and Sapphira in the second half of this reflection 
Important though it is, is only a secondary issue in tonight's passage. It's simply a warning about what happens when generosity goes wrong. I want to call you back this evening to the good thing itself, to the generosity. In the closing verses of chapter 4, Luke has gone to great lengths to show us a sacrificial generosity that ruled in the early church. And it was a reality that spoke volumes to the people around them. Friends, we live in a culture where money is God. You know when we fill in those questionnaires with our religion, there's a box missing. And it's the one that in truth most secular British people probably ought to be ticking. Of what religion are you? We worship mammon. We worship money. It's our God. If you're not entirely convinced about that, if you think I'm overstating the case, nip into town sometime soon to the new cathedral, to consumerism, Victoria Square, the great hope of our city, the place where the credit card is the answer to all things. Folks, we live in a place where money is God. And if the Spirit-filled community of Jesus Christ is to have any message at all in this culture, we need to stand up in a place that says money is God and say, no, it's not. Jesus Christ is. Money serves Jesus Christ. At least our money will. A spirit-filled community, a generous place. A place where we give because God has given to us. Let's pray. Father God, these moments when your word reaches into the very nitty-gritty, practical, down-to-earth places of our lives are often uncomfortable. And yet, Lord, we see hope for our lives here. We see that we could be people set free, people who are not prisoners to materialism and wealth, people for whom money is not God, people for whom Jesus Christ is Lord, and for whom all that we have been given is simply a resource to be used for his glory. Lord, sweep through us by your Spirit. Unshackle us where we've been imprisoned. Make us a Spirit-filled and a generous community. We pray this in Jesus' name, because he is our Lord. Amen.